Well, I had to, so I had to force myself to breathe approaching the finish line. Once I saw the, you know, the big blue finish structure and I thought about, you know, all the years of setbacks and disappointments, I really had to try, I had to make a conscious effort not to hyperventilate because I was starting to cry just as I ran up on it. Mm Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, it just wouldn't do to pass out 100 yards before the finish <laughs> So keep it together for another 100 yards, you know, and then you can ball all you want. Back to the most pleasant exhaustion podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm Patrick Aldinger, also an endurance coach and athlete here in Atlanta, Georgia. And Boston Marathon finisher once again. That's right. Congratulations. And we also have another Boston Marathon finisher with us wearing her nice... What color would you call that jacket? Coral. Coral, right on. So we have Lauren Fogarty. Uh, Lauren, thanks for being here. Great. I'm also an endurance athlete here in Atlanta, Georgia. So, right on. Lauren is a two-time Ironman, is that right? Four. Four-time Ironman, right on. And then um, Lauren has an interesting road to qualifying for the Boston Marathon that we'll talk about here in just a little while, um, but uh, but finished her first Boston on Monday. Yeah, I'm thrilled. Yeah. Thanks for... I'm excited to be here. Right on, right on. We're proud of you, Lauren, so so excellent. Uh, and so, our, our, our focus today, we're going to talk a little bit about Boston Marathon, about that kind of mind-blowing race <laughs> yeah um from from this past monday mind-blowing uh, slash wind-blowing <laughs> yeah <laughs> slash exactly. sheets of rain and, yeah yeah t- totally um and uh you know I, I sat in my office i sat in the room where we are right now watching it and so so of course my experience watching it and watching the pro race unfold and all that sort of thing but more importantly like lauren and patrick are going to give us the, the inside story mm-hmm. right on very good well so let's let's actually back up before we get to the race itself um Lauren, we just said you're a four-time Ironman, and you've done how many marathons now? Oh, my gosh. I, I don't know off the top of my head how many open marathons. That's good, though. I, so. I believe that was my eighth. All right. Very good. Very good. And then um, when did you first kind of say, all right, I want to qualify for the Boston Marathon? It was in the spring of 2013. Okay. I had a, a big PR at Publix, mm-hmm. and I was thrilled with it. And Publix... Um, if you're not in the, from the Atlanta area, is a really is a really hard course, mm-hmm. really hilly. It's not a PR and course. No, definitely yeah. not. And um, so I thought, hey, you know, maybe this is within the realm of possibilities for me. Mm-hmm. And so I went. I did an Ironman in August, and then my BQ was in November mm-hmm. of that same year, that 2013. The, that was at the Soldier Marathon, right? Yes, in Columbus. Yeah, you have nothing but good things to say about the Soldier Marathon, right? Yeah, I love it. Yeah. It's small. There's not a whole lot of crowd support, but logistically, it's really easy. Great mm-hmm. course. Mm-hmm. Good people. Yeah, and there's always there's always a few people who Boston qualify there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very good. And so I remember I remember reading your race report um, from that Soldier Marathon back in 2013, the fall of 2013, that you had in your head that you wanted to cross the finish line and hold up two pieces of paper, one yes. that had a B on it and one that had a Q on it. Like, you wanted to take that picture. I did. Yeah. And you did. And I did, yeah. yeah. I had the Sharpie and the pieces of paper in my gear check at the end of the race, and <laughs> that was, like, the first thing I did when I crossed the finish line. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you, you've probably done this before, too, before, Patrick, but I've definitely had times when I wanted to quit or wanted to back down, and the image of something is what kept me going, like, the image of, of holding the trophy or the image of checking off on the list or something like that, so... 
uh, that, that, that resonated with me when you said that. And so fast forward to September 2014, you register for your first Boston Marathon. Yes. Right? And so you're planning on doing it in 2015. Correct. Take up the story from there. And uh, everything was going well, or so I thought, until it was about five weeks before the race. And um, if you want a recipe of what not to do <laughs> before the race of your life, <laughs> here it is. Um, so I remember... On the middle of the week, there were a couple days when work was canceled. I'm a school teacher, and there was some bad weather, and they canceled school. And so I thought, oh, well, I have all this extra time. I'm going to add a couple more miles on to this run on Wednesday. And this is so, like six days before the race? Five weeks. Five weeks, my bad. Okay. Five weeks. Yeah. My bad, my bad. Sorry, yeah. So, um, so I ran a little extra Wednesday. School was canceled again on Thursday. <laughs> ran a little extra again, and I was feeling great. And then I ran... 20 miles on Saturday, and everything went fine. I thought, oh, this is amazing. Like, I'm in the greatest shape of my life. I'm going to go to this advanced ballet class on Sunday morning. And it was in that class that I felt something just not quite right in my foot. It wasn't a catastrophic injury at the time. It, it doesn't. It wasn't real Mm-hmm. debilitating in the moment. I kept dancing for the remaining 90 minutes, <laughs> mm-hmm. which again was unwise. It, it, it was a 90-minute class? Yes. I think I also want to throw out there, too, so my sister was a dancer. For those of you who don't know any dancers or maybe aren't familiar with that, if you think marathoners' feet look rough, <laughs> oh, yeah. wait till you see a dancer's yeah. uh, what they're having to walk around with. It's, it's a brutal um, activity. Yeah, and it's not an, something that's easy physically. You may see videos of somebody dancing on MTV. It doesn't look anything like well, and that, and that's what <laughs> ballet dancing. Let's let, let, let's yeah. pause for a second and, and and let's digress real quick into your history as a dancer. Yeah. Okay, because because you're not just like oh yeah I go to the club and move around a little bit. No, but like you dance. Mm-hmm. I do. I, I try to dance. Uh, it varies a lot. Sometimes just a couple times a week mm-hmm. during the summer when I'm off work. Mm-hmm. Maybe four days a week if mm-hmm. I can. Mm-hmm. So, and how, and how long have you been a dancer? Uh, I danced when I was a kid until I was about thirteen, and then I quit for a few years because I got a horse. I also rode horses growing up, and I devoted all my attention to him. And then I started again about eleven years ago, mm-hmm. I would say. Mm-hmm. And so, so, and when we talk about your dance, we're talking about like toe shoes and and. I don't dance on okay. points. I will. Soon, hopefully, now that Boston is over. Right on. But, so, so you had before? Um, a lot, probably. Actually, no. Okay, my bad. No, I, when I was a kid, I quit before I would have ever gone on point. Right, gotcha. That was right when you started going into the yeah. company at 14. Right. Yeah, I remember right. that. Gotcha. Very good, very good. All right, so, so, so anyway, going back to 2015 again, still about four or five weeks in front of Boston, uh, you spend 90 minutes in your dance class. Feel something strange with your foot after that 20-mile run and after that, that increased volume week. But you finished the class. Mm-hmm. I did. And I really didn't think anything of it. I was like, oh, this feels a little funny. I probably just need to stretch my foot some more. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the next day, instead of running, I did something else. Probably swam or biked. And then the next time I tried to run, I could tell something was really wrong. I thought, maybe I need to warm up. This will feel better after a mile or two. And then about a mile and a half in... I had to limp home, and I couldn't. I was kind of limping around for a few days until I could get into the doctor and figure out Mm -hmm. what was really happening. And what did I say? And then I got a bone scan, and uh, it was a stress fracture, and I was done. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And pretty heartbroken. I'm sure. 
Yeah. So, 2015, you watched the race. Yes. Yeah. And uh, how'd that feel? It was rough. I remember walking around the expo. I went and picked up my number and my bag and all my stuff. I don't know why. That was torture. you you, you went to the race. Well, my travel was booked. It was booked and paid for. Oh, so, yeah. and I had friends running. I mean, that, you know, that, I wanted to that cheer makes them on. Perfect sense. I just didn't so, realize that. Yeah, keep yeah, going. yeah. Oof, so I, <laughs> I walked through the expo, kind of in tears most of the time. The people giving me my number were looking at me, looking at my boot, like, "What's this about?" Right. And uh, like, are you picking up for somebody? What's right. What's going on here? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I was. Fighting back tears most of the time I was in the expo. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. I'm it, sure. It's pretty devastating when you either have to drop out of a race or have a bad race. I mean, I always yeah. tell people it almost feels like a really bad breakup because you have this like, yeah. dream right. of what's going to happen and then all of a sudden it just, it's just gone almost instantly. So yeah. that's, right. I can imagine that was very tough. Well, particularly given the fact that you, you were running so well and you got so close to it. Right. So, right. so yeah, I, I had to, I was supposed to run Boston this year, and, mm-hmm. and, but I made the decision back in December. And, and and that was coming off of my vision was already wrecked because Chicago was supposed to be so so fast and then Boston was going to be you know what I'm saying right and so so Chicago wasn't fast so my vision was already messed up right <laughs> you know the dream was already dead right so so pulling out of Boston was almost kind of like like kind of like the cherry on top for me and then I had certainly had time to get accustomed to it by the time that that the the race actually rolled around but yeah no Lauren's experience of having to not start was far different. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you watch the race. You, you still want to do it. Obviously. Oh yeah, yeah absolutely. So, so 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 take us from there. So so you start saying, "All right, let's find another race." Right. Right. So then, um, fortunately, stress fractures don't take that long to heal. I mean, in the great right. scheme of injuries that can yeah. be had, you know, a bone breaks, it heals. Yeah. And then you can kind of be good to go. And so I got out of that boot, <laughs> and I hit the ground running. Um, and I, I did follow the, the doctor's orders about trying to build conservatively. Mm-hmm. But then maybe another eight weeks after I'd started running again, I had plantar fasciitis in the same foot. Um, they didn't seem to think that it was related, but I thought that was too coincidental. Yeah. Especially because mm-hmm. it was not something I'd ever yeah. really had issues with before. And it was the same foot. Mm-hmm. And so then... And I had been thinking about an October marathon initially to try to requalify. And then it became clear I was not going to be ready for that in time. So I spent the summer kind of healing my foot, trying to stay in shape, swimming, biking. And I thought, well, maybe I can try first the soldier marathon again in November. And that quickly became apparent that that was not going to happen either. So I, kept, I had a lot of races lined up. Well, if not this one, then that one. And I kept having to push it farther and farther back. Right. And then, um, so finally it seemed that I'd be able to run in the New Orleans Marathon in February, late February. 2016. 2016, yes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I was able to. I was training. I was feeling pretty good. And then I got so nervous the week leading up to the race. I didn't sleep. I woke up every morning at... 3 a.m., tossing and turning, just grinding my teeth. And race day, I made it through about 16 miles or so. And I had some kind of, my stomach hurt. Not a nutritional thing, but it was, I think it was nerves. I don't know what else it could have been. And then around mile 16, it just, it completely fell apart. Yeah. 
I mean, you had you had all the nerves from your first Boston qual, and then and then you didn't get to run it, and so now, like, the, you you you're putting even more pressure on yourself to try and right. qualify. I mean, yeah, 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 clearly. All right, so so that didn't go well then. <laughs> so yeah, that was a disaster. Did not qualify, and then. I thought someone had told me about the Kentucky Derby Marathon Mm -hmm. in April. Mm -hmm. And I thought, all right, well, I've got about eight weeks. I have a lot of fitness. Maybe with some guidance, I could turn this around. And Mm -hmm. I kind of approached it as like a Hail Mary pass at Mm -hmm. running a qualifying time. Because I knew eight weeks was not very long to recover and all that. But I thought, hey, I have nothing to lose. I'll give it a shot. And so that was when I enlisted your help. (laughs) Yeah, you're being being me, and that and that and that. But yeah, I remember we had long conversations about whether that hail mary pass was going to work. Right. Um, and so, so we had to be very deliberate. And and I remember the one thing I said to you is that yeah, this potentially could work, but we have to. It has to be a really, really deliberate five weeks there in the yes. interim between the two marathons. Like we have to do that right. Um, and so, Kentucky Derby Marathon 2016. So I actually did run a qualifying time. I made the cutoff. Or I made the, I ran the qualifying time, but I did not do it by a great enough margin to actually right. get into the race. Right, mm-hmm. right. Was that was that a little bit of a relief though to actually get? It that? was. Yeah. It was huge mentally. Yeah. It was huge. Right. I thought, okay, this is still possible. I yeah. can still do this. Right. Because the first BQ had come. You know, it was just one of those days where everything fell into place. The right. weather was gorgeous. I felt fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's right. probably the best executed race I've ever done in my life. Mm-hmm. And it just seemed almost to fall into my lap. Right. And um, I thought, what if that was a fluke? What if I'm not really that runner? Mm-hmm. And then that race really was a turning point mentally. Cool. Right. You almost needed to break the negative feedback loop you had had for roughly a year or so. Yeah. And that's, yes. that's a very real thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, by the time you ran Kentucky Derby in 2016... It had been close to two years since you had run Soldier. It had been over a year mm-hmm. and a half. Yeah. Right? right. And so yeah. it had been a year and a half since you had a really good race. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's hard. Yeah. 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 For sure. All right. So then, so so you don't get that one. Fast forward into 2017. So then, I took some time off just to refocus, mm-hmm. <laughs> do some other things with my life. Dance some more. Dance some more, yes. Right and then do a true, a proper marathon build. Right. Targeting the Rocket City Marathon in Alabama mm-hmm. in... December. December of 2016. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I got it there. Right on. You signed up in, in September of 2017, and then, of course, you did a proper build for, for Boston as well. Yes. So very good. All right, so tell us then... Tell us then what it was like to walk through the expo knowing you were going to be doing the race the next day. As opposed oh, wow. to right. the way it was. In Not it's having to walk through it in a boot. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's really hard to put that into words because I kept thinking about, oh, the last time I was here, I was so upset and heartbroken and now I'm really doing this. And I still really was afraid to accept the fact that I was going to be doing the race. Mm-hmm. I thought, what if I trip on a curb walking out of here and break mm-hmm. my ankle? Yeah. Or what if I get hit by a car crossing the street? Yeah. Or... Yeah. What if someone sneezes on me and I get the flu the night before? Yeah. I remember, um, I mean, even backing up from that, when we crossed that five-week-to-go threshold, mm-hmm. your affect changed. Like, you, you, you were different. Like, the way yeah. that you, you, you wrote, the emails that you wrote to me and, and the comments you put in training pics, they were different. And maybe it was just, I felt different, too. 
But it's mm-hmm. like it's like we're in that zone where Lauren's gotten this far before, and, <laughs> right? And, and then it all fell apart. So um, so yeah, definitely getting to the starting line was a, a huge win. <laughs> it was. Yeah. It was. Yeah. All right. So Patrick, we can bring you back into the conversation now because because we're going to talk about like the week the week of the race then, right? Mm-hmm. So so um, Lauren, when did you travel up there? Friday night. You try, and you went on Saturday. Saturday right? morning, so similar time frame. All right, so you arrive in, well, and I guess we can back up even a little bit from that. So we start looking at the, the weather forecasts. Right? Yeah, I'm glad you bring this one up. Yeah, and so so, so we start looking, yeah, I know, right? Uh, so we start looking at the weather forecast about a week out. And about a week out, it actually looks pretty good, mm-hmm. right? About a week out, it looks cold, but it looks clear, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then, and I remember I, I went to, to lunch with one of the athletes that I coach, and I was like, hey, it looks like it's actually going to be pretty good weather for you. And I even went so far as to say, I think I said this on the podcast too, I said, I said, Patrick, you know, this is his fifth year in a row doing it. He's kind of due for some good weather. And like, oh, okay, yeah, ha, ha, yeah, Patrick, you know, we're going to have good weather because Patrick deserves good weather after having done it five years in a row here. Yeah. And, uh, and then I want to say around maybe, maybe Tuesday, so the race was the following Monday, maybe Tuesday, Wednesday, suddenly rain gets injected into the forecast. Yes. And so- the temperature doesn't go up. It's just that now it's going to be pouring rain. <laughs> yeah. So I remember too. It's, it's kind of hard. So I, I can say I left on Saturday, but I packed on Thursday. Mm-hmm. And on Thursday, it looked like it'll be cold, but not capital C cold. Mm-hmm. You know, even with the rain. It, and it was kind of like winds of like 8 to 10 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. So you're thinking, okay, so it's going to be 2015, which you experienced. Right. So I packed for like chilly, mm-hmm. not freezing. And, and, and you packed for drizzly, not. Pouring rain. Right, not yeah. Caddyshack tsunami. <laughs> um, and then we get up there, and holy smokes, that was not what we were prepared for. I, and it, yeah. you know, I don't know if you had a similar experience, uh, Lauren, but I remember getting up there within Saturday, going, "If this is going to be what it's like, I'm going to have to go to Target or Goodwill or something and figure something out." Lauren did. I had yeah. the exact same experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lauren went to Marshalls. Right. By a stroke of luck. <laughs> we were walking around near our hotel the night before the race, mm-hmm. and there happened to be Marshalls there, and I thought, you know, maybe I should try to get an extra layer. Mm-hmm. And thank God I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, I mean, so I remember checking the weather, I guess probably about the time y'all were, y'all were traveling, so Thursday, Friday, and looked down and saw, oh, there's snow in the forecast on Sunday. It's going to be snowing in Boston. Yes, see, that was new too. Right. Yeah, and I I was like, holy crap, it's going to be snowing. Are you kidding me? And then then I talked to Lauren on Sunday and said, all right, let's talk about what you're going to wear. Um, and, and you described the various things you're going to wear. And, and, and we were talking about, you know, putting on this jacket, maybe shedding the jacket, and then you were going to, and... Yeah, you never shed the jacket, did you? Oh, I did not shed the jacket. (laughs) In fact, you added the jacket to the getup that we talked about. I did. Yeah. Um, and then Lauren, um... Talk to us about your latex gloves, Lauren. (laughs) (laughs) So I had bought some like latex doctor's gloves that I was going to put on over my regular kind of felt soft gloves. Right. Because, you know, when your hands get wet and cold, I was really worried about them being so cold I wouldn't be able to manipulate my pockets and get my gels out of my pockets, which Mm -hmm. could be disastrous. And uh, so I was planning to wear that, and then I was planning to wear a plastic poncho that I was going to cut off in Athletes Village because that I don't know if they told you this, but they said don't even put a thin layer over your right. number because it will not register. And I really? thought, well, I want this poncho on regardless of what happens. So my plan was in the village when it came time to go down to the corrals to make it into a, 
a crop top, which yeah. that I didn't end up doing. Mm-hmm. I just tossed and, it. And, and that, that directive you just mentioned, that was super important because, I mean, that, that's actually crucial that you had to have your number on your outer layer. Mm-hmm. Because if you could put your number on your inner layer, then that would mean you could wear 10 extra layers. Right. And, and just shed one every two miles until mm-hmm. the finish, right? But you couldn't do that. You, you, the two of you had to make the decision at the start what you were going to wear. Right. Right. And pretty much wear that the whole time. You could share a pair of gloves maybe or, or, or even a hat. Right. But, 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 but you, had to, you had to pretty much make those decisions at the outset. What did you wear? Patrick? And I was going to say along those same lines, I packed stuff to throw away but not cold stuff to run into. Mm-hmm. Like I was planning to run singlet, shorts, and then just call it a day. Mm-hmm. And, oh, wow. and throw away like the cotton gloves a couple miles in, et cetera. Yeah. And then over the weekend, we're like, no, this is going to be cold. And so, like I said, we made that trip to Target, which, by the way, so our group, we're going to, we decide we need to go to Target, we need to buy some more clothes, like, we're going to find, like, cheap hoodies, cheap sweatpants, like, to have, not only at the start, but also at the finish. Because that's the other part, too, is then I realized, no, we need stuff waiting for us at the finish to change into, because it's going to be so cold that we need something waiting. So we decided to call an Uber and and make our way to, to Target on Saturday night. And the Uber driver just absolutely unloaded on us. He's like, who goes to Target on a Saturday night? <laughs> so I was like, well, the same people that decide it's a good idea to run in this weather, I guess. <laughs> right. um, but yeah, actually, same thing. I bought latex gloves. And we, we or I didn't buy a troop. Somebody else in our group bought latex gloves. Had We had latex underneath the cotton gloves, cotton gloves, and then latex on top to keep those dry. And then like bought arm warmers. So you had two layers of latex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then... I thought Lauren was weird for her one layer of latex. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, and then had arm warmers, which I had never worn before. No. Were, they, were they running arm warmers, or were they... They sell those at Target? Uh, that actually we found at a running store, because we went okay. someplace else, and then there was a running store across the street, and I said, let's go over there and just see what they have, and... Yeah. Because it, it was like it was almost like each day we realized how cold it was actually going to be. Yeah. So Saturday, we're thinking, okay, well, maybe we'll need something at the finish, and then Sunday, I was like, I think we'll need something during the race, too. Yeah. 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 You kind of almost, like, slowly realized yeah. what, what this is going to entail. Well, I mean, that, that was kind of my, my experience with it, too, like, looking at the weather and just thinking about it. Like, so we, we, we saw it, and we're like, okay, it's going to be cold. Okay, it's going to be cold and rainy. It literally was not until I was watching the race. And it sounds like, like, it was not until y'all were running the race that I was like, this race is profoundly different right. as a result of this weather. The, right. the, the, yeah. the, the the weather has completely altered the course of this race. Right. Um, and I, I just thought it was going to, I didn't know it was going to be that profound. Yeah. And I would say the reason I think we knew on Sunday, and you may say the same thing, Lauren, is we had to walk around in that weather. Right. Right. Because Boston's a walking city. And so, like, we had plans, oh, we're going to go here, we're going to go here, we're going to see this side. And then you get, I don't know, 50 yards outside your door, and you say, okay, I'm going right back inside. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. Figuring out what I need to do for Monday. Yeah. Right. Shalane, on Instagram, Shalane Flanagan posted herself, posted a picture of herself running the day before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's like, getting ready for Boston, running the day before. And she was wearing everything you would expect somebody to be wearing if they were running in 20 degree weather in New England. Um, you know, she, she had gloves on, she had tights on, she had a jacket on, she had a headband on. I mean, everything. And I think that wow. might have been when I kind of, when I kind of clued in, I was like, this is like a, like a mid winter race and mm-hmm. it's going to be pouring yeah. rain. Yeah. Um, and then, like I said, then, then of course the race actually starts the next day. Um, all right. So let's, let's, so, so let's talk about the, while we're on the topic of clothes, let's talk about like, so, so Lauren, you said you had planned to crop top it and you didn't. Correct. And so, so did you end up finishing in the same thing that you, you started in? I did. Yeah. Um, and then Patrick, you wore, I know you wore a whole bunch of like target 
clothes that you had bought, uh, like like sweatshirts and stuff, to the starting line. And then what'd you end up? You ended up racing in a singlet, short, arm warmers. You had a hat on too, didn't you? And then yeah, like the hat, the ITL hat. Right. And you had gloves on. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Um, yeah. It was. It was. There's been one of the the the, the conversations that's developed over the course of the past week is about the clothing that the pros were wearing mm-hmm. during the race. And I think that was sort of interesting. And and um, in particular, people were criticizing the pros, particularly the pro men, for wearing these massive jackets that look to be like literally two or three sizes too big. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And, and you know, in, in the pro race around the 17-mile mark, last year's champion, Jeffrey Karui, breaks away, and he's wearing this clear Nike jacket and you can just see it just flapping behind him, and 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 there's this gigantic amount of jacket that's that, that's hanging down from his arms and hanging off of his sides and everything like that. And right, because he's a skinny little guy, oh, so yeah. the jacket was almost acting like a windsail. Yeah, it was like a parachute. Um, I felt my jacket, the, the hood I had up the whole time. I felt like it was acting as a sail and yeah. just kind of dragging me. <laughs> it's bound backward. to be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because y'all are running into 25 mile per hour wins right right and so so anything like that that's not just like plastered to your body is going to be doing that Mm -hmm. but the thing that stood out to me so as in those conversations two things number one pros had never those pros had never raced a marathon in these conditions Mm -hmm. guaranteed um they had raced shorter races in these conditions but they had never raced a longer race in those conditions and so i think that they kind of took the same approach that you did patrick and they said all right what would I normally wear if I was running a 10K in these conditions? I would wear, I would I would go minimal, right? Because I'm mm-hmm. going to be generating a lot of heat, and I don't want to be weighed down by it, uh, given that it's going to be raining and all that sort of thing. And so they had their singlets and shorts on and some gloves, and that was probably about it. And then the Boston Athletic Association comes in and says, hey, we're going to give you an extra number. Because they had to have the number on their outermost, outermost layer too, right? But they gave all of them an extra number. And so all those elites have a number with their name on it, but then they also had a number that was just a number. And so they would put that number on their outermost layer and they said, oh, this is cool. This way I can put on a jacket and have that jacket on for the first 5K, 10K, 15K, whatever. And then I'll shed that when the real racing begins and I'll have my singlet and shorts and gloves and, and, and I'll be good to go. Um, you know, Jeffrey Carew, who I just mentioned just a second ago, you could actually, since he was wearing a clear jacket, you could see both of his numbers. Both the one that said Karui that was on his innermost layer and the, the one on his outermost mm-hmm. layer. And so to me that suggests clearly... None of them were planning on taking off the jacket, or all of them were planning on taking off the jackets. Like none of them were planning to run that whole race wearing their jackets. Right. And then Des Linden finished in her jacket. You know, the women's winner finished in her jacket with her not with her name number, but with her extra number on the outside. Because mm-hmm. I think they got to the halfway point of the race and they're like, "It's too cold. Yeah, I can't take it off." Um, and so I think so. All these people. My point is, all these people have been criticizing the pros for for wearing clothing that wasn't appropriate. I think what you're missing is the pros weren't planning to wear that the whole time. Right. And, um, and kind of like us, it's amazing how you start off with the plan. It's almost <laughs> like when you build a building and you say, all right, or like a school, all right, we have more kids now, so let's build another one over here. Yeah. Oh, we have no kids, so we have to build another one over here. Yeah. Oh, right, we have more kids, so let's build. And then all of a sudden you have this disjointed building or this yeah. disjointed plan. I think that kind of happened to a lot of us with our running and our clothing. Absolutely. Because you start off like, okay, it's going to be 50 and drizzling. Here's our appropriate clothing. I'm all set. I have my plan. And you find out, oh, it's going to be a little colder. All right, I'll add gloves. Mm-hmm. All right, it's going to be a little colder. All right, I'll add a hat. Mm-hmm. But you almost don't think about, no, it's going to be this cold and this windy. How do I like, almost and, start and you're from gonna that be, And you're going to be basis. sopping wet. Right. Right. And you're going to be out there for hours. Right. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. like, like, like if you don't wear enough in a 10K, 
all right, so you get a little bit cold and your, your race is done. Right. You're going to be out there for hours. I mean, and so y'all, I think it's interesting, y'all had to think more about your clothing than the pros did. Because mm-hmm. they told the pros, hey, you can drop a layer. And they're like, okay, cool. And so, so they didn't actually have to think through, what am I going to wear for the whole race? Y'all actually had to think that through right. more than they did. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, in, in defense of the pros who wore those big bulky jackets and all that sort of thing, I, I think that they just... They they weren't planning to wear those the whole time, and they and they had never experienced this before. Right. You know. Yeah, yeah and kind of along those same lines, like the race conditions were just so different. Mm-hmm. For example, I can tell you, I made the decision about mile fifteen to stop drinking water mm-hmm. because I could tell, like, this is like I'm too cold, and if I keep drinking water, that just drops the body temperature more and more. Mm-hmm. Right. Never in my life have I said to myself, hey, I need to stop drinking water for health reasons. Like, that's just not right. a, that's not something you've ever said in your Especially life. Especially like, endurance sport. Right. It, like, undermines our last podcast. <laughs> 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 yeah, remember all that stuff we talked about in the hydration episode? Forget it. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, and I can even tell you, I even was trading some messages with uh, a guy at, at NIH who kind of does a lot of research in, in endurance athletics, just over social media. And I said, I told him about that. And he said, yeah, we actually found a lot of the pros said, we don't know why. We just feel that we're getting chillier when we drink this water. So let's just stop. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of, that's beyond counterintuitive of what you've been told yeah. and what you usually think for an endurance sport. And they found that, yeah, in these conditions, it probably would have been, you probably would have burned more calories to try to increase your body temperature from that, from having to, um, from that, you know, additional cooling from the water right. than it would have been worth and than what it would have provided. Right. Hmm. But you had been drinking up to 15 miles. Yes. But that's, you, that's the other part, too. Yeah. Is had you waited, you could have been in real trouble. Yeah. Right. So so it's kind of this this sort of, it's and we talked about this before we started, this sort of catch-22. Mm-hmm. That, okay, so you can't not drink water. Right. Because cause then, cause then you're going to fall apart, and then that's going to force you to slow down, and then you're going to get even colder. Right. Right. Um, so, yeah. Lauren, were you having to make those sorts of decisions? Yes. That was probably the least amount of water I've ever Mm -hmm. had in any race. Mm -hmm. I usually start marathons with a bottle, like a plastic bottle, to just Mm -hmm. throw away around maybe the halfway point or so, because I don't like to stop in the early miles. It Mm -hmm. just messes with my rhythm too much. And it was not full when I got to the start, because I had been so cold in the athlete's tent that waiting to try to fill it up, I was like, you know what, forget it. I'm just going to carry what's in the bottle now and deal with course fluids when I get there. You didn't want to stand still in line and wait to fill it up? Correct. <laughs> I mean, like, if, if, if that's not like an example of how cold it must have been just waiting yeah. for the race to start. Yeah, that's, yes. I have a whole lot to say about that when we get there. Um, but yes. And so... I had maybe eight ounces in it that I drank, and then I had I drank maybe twice, two or three times more during the race. Mm-hmm. I mean, little sips from little cups, mm-hmm. and then I just had the same mm-hmm. reaction. I didn't feel like it was doing me any good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so let's go ahead and wind back then to that weight that you had to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so. You dropped off your clothes at the finish, like we talked about in the preview episode. You took the bus to the, did you take the bus to the start? Yes. Yeah, so you took the bus to the start. Um, and then and then what? Like, how long did you wait? And, and what, was the, what was the situation there? Because aren't the tents, like, set up in a big muddy field? Yes. Well, so I was, I was really looking forward to hearing your experience in the tent, especially because you were in the earlier wave. And I was wondering if the tents and the field 
was any better when you guys got there versus <laughs> those of us a little farther back, or if it was still the dystopian mud pit that <laughs> I came upon. <laughs> okay, so the, the, the interesting point here. So we got on the bus, and I don't know what happened, but our bus driver took an exit literally 13 miles outside of Hopkington. Oh my gosh. She, she, just, yeah. she just took you on the scenic route. Yeah, we were like we were the only bus where everyone's like looking around like where are we? So, so we the bus driver got lost or just took we a have longer no idea. route. You don't know, but it wow. took about thirty minutes longer than usual. So I got there. <laughs> we got there probably race started at ten. We got there like at nine, eight thirty, eight forty five. So by the time we got there, yeah, it was definitely muddy. The tent was already full. There was no sitting down at the tent. right. You might be able to kind of like force your way into like one of the edges of the tent mm-hmm. where you can still kind of be blocked from the wind but you're not sitting down and it was just a total mud was pit. there any were the people in the middle sitting down or anything yes yeah, so people okay. the middle was filled with people kind of sitting down and it was and then the edges were all people like us who had gotten there a little later we're just trying to get under the tent now what we did do was we tied some tar so we had our glorious trip to target on saturday or sunday whenever that was mm-hmm. and we took those plastic bags from target and just tied them around our shoes mm-hmm. that way Walking around this mud pit. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- that way our shoes weren't just caked in mud right. mm-hmm. before the race even right. started. All right. So, Lauren, describe the dystopian nightmare that was the, <laughs> yeah. that was the, the, the mud pit starting area. Well, I do want to add that I tried to do the same thing with my shoes before I even left the hotel. Because yeah. I could already see that it was pouring rain when right. I left my hotel. Mm-hmm. And so I did that, and they did absolutely nothing. I mean, my feet were soaked before I even dropped off my mm-hmm. gear bag. Yeah. Um. Yes, so we got up to the athlete's village and got off the bus, and uh, it was, the mud was at least three inches deep for most areas, and so I had ridden up, <laughs> I had so ridden up on the bus the with two yes. of my friends, and yeah. one of them had some kind of connection to a bus that her coach had, so she got to go sit on this dry bus. I can't even imagine how wonderful that must have been. <laughs> and my other friend and I ventured off. <clears throat> and we found later. another girl, another Suckers, woman I got that we this knew. other bus over here. I'm going to yes. dry. Y- y'all enjoy the mud. <laughs> she pulls down the window. Hey, is it cold out there? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Can you make a bagel? <laughs> anyway, keep going. And so, so, yeah, so we walked up, and uh, there were, the earlier wave was walking, and we were kind of in the river of runners, not even what, what realizing. Wave, what wave were you in? Wave three. Wave three, okay. And so what was your start time? Ten fifty. Okay. okay. And we and, got and you there were about nine. And that was start time of ten. Ten. Okay. Keep going. And so we got there a few minutes after nine, mm-hmm. and uh, we got kind of caught up in the wave that was leaving to go to the corrals before we realized those people were walking to the start of the race, and so we jumped out of that line, and tried to get to the tent, but then we saw how muddy it was, and we didn't. We had discarded our plastic bags because we felt like they were just keeping cold water attached to our feet, which was. <laughs> Not right, ideal. right. You had, you had bags of water strapped to your feet. Exactly. So we had discarded those on the bus. And um, we, one of my friends and I, we didn't want to plod through the mud to get into the tent. So we took this long, circuitous route, kind of hopping onto every patch of grass that we could find. And then we found ourselves over by the porta potties. So we stood in line in the porta potties for a long time, which was an adventure with all the layers that we were wearing. Mm. And, um, and then by the time we got over to the tent, they were starting to call our wave. Mm-hmm. And so we uh, only really spent a few minutes under the tent just trying to situate ourselves and make our last minute preparations mm-hmm. before we started walking over there. What, what was the 
What was the energy in that area? I mean, were people nervous? Were a lot of nervous energy and a lot of like, I'm from Texas. I don't know what to do right now. You know, a lot <laughs> of that kind of okay. um, those conversations, and you could kind of pick out people that were just kind of had just these giant frog eyes, like, "Holy smokes, am I really going to do this?" Right. And then you saw those that were kind of more internal. It was kind of interesting to see, like. We had some that were almost like rock stars, like trying to get themselves up for the concert. Yeah. So it was kind of interesting to see the different psychologies. Yeah. Of the way people I did not of... see any rock stars. It yeah. Pretty, <laughs> it was pretty solemn from what I saw. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I think, yeah. I, I saw, there was one woman when we first got off the bus in the river of people heading to the corrals, just sitting in the middle, knees tucked up into her chest on the ground, just kind of shaking and rocking back and forth. Just in the fetal position, yes. like, yeah. Completely shut off to the world, mm-hmm. just waiting, I guess, for her wave while people huh. tiptoed around her. Jeez. Yeah, I mean, and I, I didn't think of this until we just started talking about it, but I mean, I, I try and isolate myself from real negative energy before the start of the mm-hmm. race. Like, if I hear somebody complaining about it, right. oh, well, they're going to do that, you know, yeah. whatever they are. Uh, the officials of the race are, you know, changing the, the, the path to the start or something like that, you know, and people complain about it. I always try and really avoid those folks before mm-hmm. a race, you know? Yeah. And it would be, it might be hard to do that in some places. I mean, so I will say, I didn't hear a whole lot of complaining. That's good. I could tell that people were nervous, as yeah. was yeah. I. Yeah. But people were still being very, everybody was super friendly and helpful, cool. and I didn't hear much complaining. Good. Which was. It was more people wonderful. trying to work out how they're going to deal with this. Right. Like exactly. they almost have questions like, right. have you done this before? Yeah, this is my third marathon. What you know? Yeah. There's a lot more like conversations about that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of that is you know to get to Boston, you have to be somebody who's very focused and goal oriented. Um, yeah, I mean it was definitely kind of an Brazilian. interesting, right? It was definitely a very interesting kind of pre-race atmosphere. Because also I can tell you too, nobody was talking about, hey, what do you want to run today? Oh, my goal is sub three, or my goal right. is this. Everybody right. was like. Times were out the window. No, mm-hmm. no one was really thinking about. Oh, my Boston PR is this. So I want to beat that. Or right. That's interesting. Yeah, and, and that's perfect. Sense. And that's, that's almost always the case. Like, and just mo- generally, when you go to Athletes Village, you say, "Hi, I'm Patrick. Hi, I'm Jimmy. Oh, what do you want to run today?" And then that's kind of how you kind of start. And you say, "Oh, well, let's run together the first five miles or right. something." Right. That there was none of that here. Right. It was all of, "Hey, what are you wearing?" Yes. You know. Mm. Yeah, I had, a, yeah. I had a friend with me. She and I had traveled together throughout the whole morning journey. And <laughs> it's interesting <laughs> in those situations how a person can become, like, your entire universe. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going to make a decision without her here f- to hear me bounce this idea off of her. Right. And we almost, we lost each other for a couple of minutes once they finally called our wave and they were checking our numbers to let us walk up to the start. And it was like, I was that kid at the mall who loses their mom. And you can see their face just drop and, like, the scream is coming from inside. I'm like, no, where is she? Yeah. And then, you know, two minutes later, yeah. <laughs> she appeared and the world was, was well again. Mm. But um, it was a huge help having a friend there to kind of make decisions together and not feel like I was... Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. Doing like, things on my own. Yeah, because, because you don't know if any of your decisions are the right one. Right. So I just, do not just trust have, my pre-race brain yeah. at and all. So, and so just having one other person. And then, so pre-race brain plus this crazy situation. Right. So, so, so having at least one other person there to say, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That makes sense to me too. Right. That, that, that would be very comforting. Yeah. I can imagine, yeah. Um, all right, so race starts. 
So it, the race start was interesting. So I was so I could say I was so focused on staying warm. Mm-hmm. So if the race started at ten during I, during the race, or? no, I'm, I'm saying like getting to the start, being right. at the start. I probably shed my hoodie, sweatpants, etc. at nine fifty nine and forty five seconds. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like the mm-hmm. absolute last second. Like yep. they're counting down the thirty seconds, mm-hmm. and I'm like, okay, maybe I should start taking stuff off now. Mm-hmm. The race goes off. You were you were literally like. 30 seconds, I got plenty of time. Exactly. Like, yes. I, I can get 10 more seconds yes. here. I was doing the same math you do when your alarm goes off in the morning. You're like, okay, <laughs> I, the alarm says I should be getting up now. However, right. if I really hustle, right. I can save two minutes. And were other people doing that too? Yes. Okay. And I remember the, the, the gun goes off and we start. And we're running. And about half a mile in, I'm like, I think I'm running the Boston Marathon right now. Hmm. Like, it was so... Like you, we, there was no, like, usually in a race, you're, like, you're thinking about, okay, what splits do I want to hit? You know, what what are my strategies? Do I want to hit this hill hard? All the, You kind of have the eye of the tiger. This race, it started, like, we were so focused on the cold and staying warm. There were, like, the first mile or so, it was almost reminding myself, yeah, this is a race. Okay, I'm here. You're about to run 20, yeah, I'm here. I'm about to run 26 miles. So I don't know if you had a similar reaction. I think mine was different just because... Of everything leading up to the Boston yeah. Marathon. That was one thing that I was really trying to focus on all morning mm-hmm. was don't get so caught up in the weather and the clothes and the mm-hmm. cold and the this. Like, you were here doing about about yeah. to do this thing that you've been wanting for so long. Like, That's cool. I'm take in every right. minute that you possibly can. So, I did, no. When I came to that starting line, I was very well aware that I Good. was running the Boston Marathon. But it was a conscious effort. You had to... It, yes, yeah. it was an effort. Yeah, kudos for actually... Being wise enough to make yourself consciously do that, um, because yeah, I think you probably would be looking back on it now with a little bit of regret right. if you would have if you would have let all those things distract you from enjoying and suffering right. the experience. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I mean, that was one thing you had said in our preview is that you know make sure that you enjoy the experience. Yeah, and, and it seems like it 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 would have been very easy for that stuff to suck a lot of the joy and the, the specialness out of the experience. Um, all well, right, so it ended up being special. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, 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 it was funny. Like when, when I saw the weather report, I was like, "I'm glad I'm not doing it. They can have it," <laughs> you know. And then afterwards, and like even three or four days afterwards, I was like, "That might have been kind of cool to be able to say, okay, I did that one in mm-hmm. this this epic day." Because you know, forty years from now, they're going to be saying, "Okay, this weather was bad, but it wasn't as bad as." 2018 when it, and I would be able to say oh I was there well and yeah. both of y'all will be able to say you were there which is cool so uh, in 2038 or whatever we can talk about how we had to run this race and exactly we, all, we also walked to school barefoot I was gonna say we, we can brag snow. Snow. Yeah. 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 yeah yeah exactly you will be able I won't be able to I'll say you know what you know what Chicago Patrick did that's what they call you by the way oh um, yes yes you know what your new friend Laura and you're referring did? to Quentin and Candler of course yeah yeah of course mm-hmm. um, um but uh Anyway, so so race starts, you clue in, you're running the Boston Marathon. Just this is kind of bump the whole first half of the race together. Like how the first half of it go? Um, the first half was great actually because I once I started running, I felt infinitely better than standing around in those tents. Mm-hmm. I started to warm up. My feet started to warm up. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do want to say that I felt. As though I had not, I don't, I can't say seated myself because obviously you don't get to choose where you start, but I think that we had taken long enough making our pre-race adjustments in the tent. We heard them call our wave and we were like, what? 
you know, our wave doesn't start for another 50 minutes. I'm not rushing out there to stand in the cold rain for another almost an hour. Like, I'm taking my time shedding the layers I need to shed and eating the things I need to eat. And I'll walk out there and I'll get there when I get there. And so I, I do regret that now because I think that I got, I ended up starting with a farther back group than I was supposed to. Mm -hmm. And I think that that cost me a bit of time in the beginning Mm -hmm. because I intended to go out conservatively after having listened, listened to everybody's comments on that podcast about Boston. But even so I felt, I mean, that the pace we were running was still excruciatingly slow. Mm -hmm. And I was wanting to weave around people, which I knew was not good. And even running conservatively, I still felt like I was not running anywhere near the pace that I was intending to. Mm -hmm. And And so I do feel like that cost me some time in the first few miles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's particularly tough when you consider that steepest downhills are the first few miles mm-hmm. so people talk right. about oh it's a net downhill a lot of times i don't understand you can't use that downhill because you're almost in like the right the cattle i, I definitely point. had that experience mm-hmm. i really couldn't open up mm-hmm. on any of those downhills mm-hmm. and then my feet were also playing tricks on me i <laughs> hallucinated in some way and was convinced within after the first mile that i had left one of the heating packets that i had put in there in the morning in my left shoe because I'd put the little, um, what do they call those? The hot hands. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'd put them in my shoes in the morning before I left the hotel. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, oh, I must have left one in there in the village. This is going to be really bad. And I kept going back and forth. Should I stop and take it out? Should I just run with it? And then I decided that to develop a huge blister around mile 18 was going to be a lot more detrimental to the race than to take a couple minutes, stop, pull over, take it out, and keep running. So I stopped in the middle of mile two, took off my shoe, and there was absolutely nothing in it. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And then I was kicking myself. Was that also the same foot you had, the stress fracture? It was, yes. I don't know that that was related because once I put my shoe back on and started running again, I started feeling like my sock and my right foot was bunching up, and I said, no, that's just my imagination. Mm -hmm. I think cyclists are probably familiar with that sometimes. Mm -hmm. And um, Feet get cold and start doing sort of weird things. Yes, and I think as they were thawing out, my feet or my brain or both just started playing tricks on me. So I lost about a minute there Mm -hmm. in the great scheme of things. Mm -hmm. Didn't matter. I guess it was a small price to pay for peace of mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I would say my number one concern the first 10 to 15 miles or so was just to not have to run into the wind. What do you mean? So what I mean by that is I spent the first 10 miles just constantly finding the tallest guy I could and getting behind them. And you're not a short guy. No. But, I mean, in all seriousness, I knew from 2015, I was like, it's going to break up into packs in a couple miles. And you'll need somebody who, A, has the lo- the the uh, stride length to be able to run behind them on the downhill mm-hmm. and not be kind of doing the chop, 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 chop steps. Mm-hmm. But also just for, for drafting purposes, because that was my number one concern from a racing perspective. Because mm-hmm. like, okay, we'll warm up once we start running. However, if you're running into the wind, that's going to be what's going to really, you know, cut down on the time. Since this mm-hmm. is a point-to-point race, you'll never get the headwind as a tailwind. Right. So it's kind of interesting how I was almost so focused on that that I almost didn't pay attention as much to some other factors like, goal race pace as I usually would. I made sure I didn't go out too fast or too slow, but it was a much kind of more forgiving time window I had kind of in my head for, for what pace I wanted to run based on who was around me. 
But that's how the flow state works, though. Mm-hmm. You know that the the. the you know the, the the ideal mindset, or what's generally considered to be the ideal mindset when you're when you're in the midst of an endurance activity, is the flow state, right? right. And and probably the the single biggest characteristic of the flow state is that you're in the moment, right? Right. That you that you're not thinking about okay, is this my race pace? Okay, well if I run every single mile at this pace, what's my what's my final time going to be? Mm-hmm. Oh, this is not what I wanted to do. And that, that that you're literally like in the moment, right? And you're thinking about okay, where's the next guy I'm going to draft off of? Mm-hmm. Okay, let me let me think about my my stride on this particular hill and all that sort of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And so so yeah, in kind of a roundabout way, that it 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 probably helped your. Mm-hmm. Your, your your flow state, your ability to get to that place, right? Yeah, I would say so. And also, too, where it helped is when you when I wasn't so focused on the pace itself or on the end outcome. Then that meant once it was time to really kind of knuckle down, mm-hmm. you know, in the final five to ten miles, mm-hmm. I hadn't wasted a lot of mental energy on, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. the first fifteen or so. Yeah, which I think a lot of people did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, now the the pro races, as as I'm watching them, as I'm sitting in the office watching them. The pro races were, were went out totally differently from one another. Yeah. The women's pro race ran their first 5K. It was their slowest 5K of the entire race. Um, they went out in about just under 20 minutes. Um, and so, mm-hmm. so they just kind of strolled through it. And considering the downhill, um, they, they weren't really running all that hard. Right. And, and not sure exactly why that was. It's, it's probably in part because they were, in, well, almost entirely in part because they were, they were intimidated. But whether that meant that none of them wanted to take the lead or none of them wanted to, to, to break the wind and have other people drafting off them or, or whatever it happened to be, um, I do wonder whether it was just like there, there was a bit of a kind of like, ugh, feeling amongst, you know what I'm saying? That we've got to do this now. We have to, you know, I do wonder about that. And then in stark contrast, the men were the opposite. The opening mile for the men, which was led by Yuki Kawauchi, was 437. And then wow. they, they blasted out. <laughs> Um, and then they end up going through the halfway. All right, market. fellas, twenty five to go. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, four thirty seven pace. Good job. You're you're you're, you're on two oh one pace. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, and so they go blasting out, and they end up running through the first half in in um, in about one oh three um, in two oh seven pace, mm-hmm. um, despite those conditions. Um, so yeah, the, the the men went out really, 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 really hard. Um, I read something actually um, just right before we were starting. Um, that was from uh, Yuki Kawauchi's um, uh, Yuki Kawauchi, who went on to win, I should say. <laughs> yes, and and because we, I, I don't guess we've talked about that yet. Yuki Kawauchi, who we've talked about on the podcast before, mm-hmm. um, he won the men's race, and 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 then Des Linden, who was your choice for the for the for the women, mm-hmm. who not your choice, but who you wanted, who you said you wanted to see win, mm-hmm. wins for the women, and so like within about an hour of of the of the finishes. Uh, Chrissy, who's one of our, our, our uh, most loyal listeners, wrote on the podcast page, Yuki Kawauchi and Desi Linden win, two podcast favorites. Right. <laughs> and I was like, exactly. Um, but yeah, no, it was funny because I had, I had seen that Yuki Kawauchi led through the miles. Like, yeah, my man, Yuki Kawauchi. You know, like, good, good for, for his, him. For yeah. his 80-something, you know, for his, yeah. for his fourth marathon this year. Um, and, you know, for his 80-something sub-220, he's going out and he's leading through the mile. You the man, Yuki Kawauchi. You do it to it. I mean, I even mentioned him almost obligatorily in the, uh, in the preview because I just, I think he's cool and I think he's fun. Yeah. Um, and uh, but anyway, so I but I did read something that said that that um, he uh, his his goal or one of his strategies with the race was to try and take Galen to take the sting out of Galen Rupp's tail, and that that 
he said he saw in Chicago the way that Galen Rupp kind of kind of didn't take the lead and then just blasted the last 10k. Yeah. And he's like, I'm going to take it out hard. I'm going to ensure that this this race is hard from the start so that nobody can sit and kick. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, in retrospect, that's kind of incredible that he's actually thinking about strategies on that day. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> Especially yeah. that particular strategy, because I can tell you, yeah. I, right. I, I too was thinking, I mean, we, we talked about before about how you really have to respect the final, you know, five, six miles of the Boston Marathon. And you, or you really have to respect the Newton Hills on, so really it's mm-hmm. more like the final ten. Mm-hmm. So when you crash, you can really crash. And then the rain and the wind added another variable of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. So, the fact that he decided to go for it anyways, to me, was pretty impressive. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he was rewarded for it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and and it stands in such a stark contrast. The, the women's race started the way that I think you would expect. That mm-hmm. Everybody's nervous. Mm-hmm. And, and they know not to go out too fast because of those Newton Hills. And so, everybody holds back and they end up they end up running their second 5K about two minutes faster than they were in their first 5K. Mm-hmm. Just to kind of give you an indication of, 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 how, of how slow they were running that first 5K. Not the men. Not mm-hmm. Yuki Kawauchi, man. Um... <laughs> Jeez. So I anyway. mean, when you run marathons and half marathons in a full body panda suit, I guess <laughs> fearlessness is Which, kind of part right. in your DNA. Yeah. Like, well, I can't embarrass myself or you know make myself stand out any more than I already have. Yeah, so yeah, why not? Lose, yeah. Or four marathons by April? Yeah, and he did, and he did twelve I mean, last year. Wow. Yeah, he he did he he did the he was the solo winner of the Marshfield Marathon in two eighteen on January first. Mm-hmm. He was the only person who finished the race, and it was. It was like uh, it was single degree temperatures and snowing, mm-hmm. and and he did that. That's and, right, he did. And then and then in in February and March he ran a marathon in uh, in Japan and he ran a marathon in Taiwan, and then in April he comes out and runs Boston and takes the W. Mm-hmm. And he and he's run under he's run under uh, two twenty in all of those races. And he's he's not a slouch. I mean, he finished he finished ninth in the world championships last year. Right. It's just that he 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 combines re- being really really fast, you know, with with running a whole lot. And usually there there's it's one or the other. You know, the people who run a marathon a month, some of them might be under three hours for all of them, so they're pretty fast. But they're not under two fifteen for most of them. Right. You right. know. Um, and so, yeah, it's just kind of incredible. And then, um, but he was almost kind of like a, like a sideshow, almost kind of like, like, like a viral type sensation. And then now he's won Boston. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of incredible. I mean, I'm, I'm still mind blown by it. And I, and I think it's great. Um, yeah, some, somebody said to me, I, I thought you liked Yuki Kawuchi. I was like, I love the guy. I think he's fantastic. I did not think he was going to win the Boston Marathon. <laughs> no. Um, and he yeah. did. And incredible. And so, so we'll talk more about his finish here in just a few minutes. But anyway, all right. So back to y'all's races. Um, so go through the first half. When did you realize that you were not shedding your parka? <laughs> oh, I knew that from the get go. <laughs> yeah. There, once I bought it, I, I said, this thing's staying on me for the yeah. entire time. I had planned to shed the latex gloves mm-hmm. and I did not. I don't know how much good they did me once mm-hmm. the race started, but mm-hmm. I, they were like my safety blanket. I was so terrified yeah. of taking them off yeah. that I did not. They did cost me, uh, when I was trying to access my gels later, okay. because they just are so sticky and I couldn't get into the tight pockets in my top, gotcha. and so I had to give up um, a couple gels mm-hmm. during the race. I don't think it ended up having a huge impact on it, but... But you were scared to take them off. I was scared, yes. Yeah. My hands get very cold and they mm-hmm. lose dexterity very quickly, and mm-hmm. I just... 
mm-hmm. I wanted to be able to use my fingers. I think that was common. I think that's yeah. the reason why the, none of those pros took their jackets off. Yeah. Um, all right, so talk to me about, so, so you're out there, and talk to me about the weather it's like as you're running. Because it's, it's, it's not just kind of wet and cold and windy. It's, it's pouring rain, right? Mm-hmm. Talk to me about that. Yeah, and I think we might have even gotten a little bit of hail around 7 or 8 or so. Because I That's remember nice. we were going, and I mean, obviously I'm in a big pack. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, the guy next to me goes, that hurt. <laughs> and then, like, he wasn't kidding. Like, it started kind of hailing on us. And it actually, like, hurt. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, it's coming down on you just like, well, here we are. Mm-hmm. So I remember telling the guy next to me, I said, well, this is lovely, isn't it? You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, almost like, why not at this point? Um, but I kind of similar to you, I remember... No one beforehand, I'm probably not going to warm up. I'm probably going to start as warm as I am right now on the bus and only right. get colder for the next five hours or so. Mm-hmm. But then definitely around eight or mile eight or nine, it's like, no, like, keep everything on. You're not warming. You're not going to overheat. That will That is not a risk in this race in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the weather itself, I don't remember the cold actually like impacting my racing necessarily like I don't remember saying man I'm freezing I wish I had more circulation in my legs to kind of power up these hills or anything mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. um but I do remember thinking when I finish this could be a problem you know yeah. once we cross the finish line mm-hmm. and, and you're not generating any heat and you're not generating any heat yeah 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 but, I, I guess I had a different experience I mm-hmm. felt like my legs were mm-hmm just two blocks of ice. And mm-hmm. I had a pair of tights on. We had been debating a lot about whether it would be better to have wet tights right. or bare legs. Right. I don't know. I don't know that it would have made a difference much either way. It's hard to say. But I, I remember feeling like my hip flexors were just on fire mm-hmm. or completely frozen. I, my legs felt really yeah. tight. And is that a general time. pain point for you, like the hip flexors? No, or? my hip flexors... Typically, yeah. do not bother me. I, I mean, I would imagine being a dancer, that would be. Yeah, it was it was worrisome because right. dancers always run around in these like plastic short kind of things to keep yeah. their hips loose and. Yeah. Um, generally, I think my hips are pretty loose. Yeah. <laughs> but not during that race, hmm. and I, I didn't feel like I could run with my usual rhythm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I attribute to the cold. I mean, I guess mm-hmm. it's possible it could have been other things, but. M- Molly Huddle. Um, the the American record holder in the ten thousand meters who was running Boston, and she she fell apart and ended up finishing sixteenth, but she finished, mm-hmm. which we'll talk about that in a minute. But um, she said at one point, she said her legs were on fire. She used that same phrase you just did, um, which is, I think, I think interesting um, that that like that particular feeling mm-hmm. um, is not that's not normally something you get in the in the midst of a marathon, right? It's, Especially it's, not that early either, yeah. right? Right. Uh, um, but then, yeah, and I had a conversation with a, with a, with another athlete this week about what you just said. Um, is the tights holding cold water onto your legs? Is that actually potentially even worse um, than than not having the legs covered? It's hard to say, right? Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I mean, I, I I will say that that um, like, and this is completely opposite. When when I when I raced Kona in 2014, I was wearing a suit, and the suit when I would put water over myself on the bike would hold the water on my back. And I thought that was I thought it was great because mm-hmm. it cooled me off. It kept me cooler when I was on the bike. Right, right? so it's like right. holding a rag. So it stands to reason that, that it would be like holding wet rags against your against your thighs mm-hmm. and that could potentially make it even colder. But, I mean, it, I, I guess, and this is a question that about, about clothing technology that I simply don't know the answer to. 
at what point does does uh, a pair of tights or a pair of pants lose its insulating properties? Right. Um, because that's really the, the, the heart of it, right? Yeah. Um, that um, obviously they're wet, and so there was some cold going on there, but if you're still getting an insulating effect, then it might have been a wash. But if not, then, yeah, it would be worse. Um, yeah, and so. I, I think the real takeaway is all of a sudden we're asking questions we didn't expect to ask. Right. This was not within yeah. our even our database of potential issues to consider Right. until right. you're there. Yeah. Right. For sure. For sure. Mm-hmm. All right, so um, I want to hear a little bit about Lauren's experience. So you had... Wellesley, right? You'd heard about it. Yes, I had heard about it. And right. it was absolutely true what they said about you being able to hear the scream, you know, a half mile <laughs> yeah. before you get there. Yeah. And um and I think part of my race experience was also different because I was not focusing on trying to draft off people, trying to do this and that. Once I realized this is not gonna be a PR for me, I'm probably not gonna BQ again today either, I was just said, you know what, forget it, I'm just gonna take in Every mm-hmm. moment that I can. Right on. And I knew I had friends coming up at Wellesley. So I definitely got a big boost running up towards Wellesley and hearing mm-hmm. the scream and, mm-hmm. you know, got a little choked up and saw my friends, gave them a big smile and a high five. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I couldn't believe that I was halfway through the race at that point. Because paradoxically, even though there was so much, go- there was so much to distract me, I think. There was so much to think about mm-hmm. that day. I mean, it was like 26 miles of sensory overload yes, coming at you from so many different sources. That The fans, the weather. The fans, the weather, the experience of being in Boston. Yeah. You know, all the things I've been thinking about, about trying to keep myself warm, taking a nutrition, hydration. That That race has probably gone by faster than any other race that I've done, hmm. which I know seems strange to say because it was also at the same time such a suffer fest, mm-hmm. which usually, you know, you're counting down every minute like, oh my God, am I there yet? Yeah. And I definitely didn't have that experience. There were a lot of times when I thought like, oh my gosh, I'm already at this mile. Like, how can I be this close? Like, I want to stay out here and take it in just a little mm-hmm. bit longer. That's the paradox to me. Mm-hmm. The paradox to me is the fact that, that it was such a, a, a difficult condition, such a difficult environment in which to try and run the race, but yet you actually wanted, you wanted to take longer. You wanted right. to slow, you wanted to slow time down. Usually you want to slow time down when you're watching Hamilton or something like that. And you're like, <laughs> you're like, Oh my God, we're at intermission already. You know, right. you, 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 you want, you want to suck up some really positive. You were in the midst of, of a very difficult experience and you wanted it to actually take longer. I did. Cause I, I felt like everything was just going by. So, you know, I wanted to take note of every sign that I saw, every person cheering. Cause I was blown away by the crowds yeah. that there were that many people out yeah. in that kind of weather was absolutely mind-blowing to me. Because I've never done a race of this size. All the other marathons I've done have been smaller local races where Mm -hmm. there's really not a whole lot of crowd support. And I was just stunned at how many people were out there and how enthusiastic they were. Right. I I was like, what's wrong with (laughs) y'all? What are you doing here? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to explain to people. Not only is it a lot of people... But it's a lot of people cheering as if they're like at a football game. Right. Like they're not giving mm-hmm. you the golf clap as you're running by. It's right. pretty wild to, to run through just a tunnel of screaming people. Yeah. Um, to the point where you're actually kind of desensitized by the end. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've missed people that have screamed my name. So I'm like, I just right. don't even yeah. hear it anymore. Uh-oh. And I feel, and I don't know, and I, and I, I have a couple of people I know who went and cheered, so I should probably reach out to them. But I feel like, in the same way that, that there were certain runners 
that were like, hell yeah, this is this big challenge. This is going to be this epic day and, and I'm going to embrace it and I'm going to run hard. You know, there were people that were fired up about that opportunity. Like one of the athletes that we coach mm-hmm. who ended up PRing. I think one of the reasons why he PRed on this day was because, because he truly, and he, well, he wasn't concocting it. He truly was fired up and inspired by the fact that, that, um, that he was going to have the opportunity to run in, in these apocalyptic conditions. Mm-hmm. Like that, that, that fired him up and, and inspired him to end up running a PR. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty incredible. You know, and, 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 and like I said, he truly felt it. He wasn't, it wasn't like him just, you know, trying to convince himself of it. Um, but I, but I wonder whether like the fans too were like, we're going to go out and cheer in this thing. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And, and, and they like, they like got fired up about the opportunity of going out in this, you know, I hate the word epic. I think it's overused, but on this epic day of, of this epic fan experience, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know? Um, and even and even like so, all the people out there cheering for all of you who are doing this phenomenally hard thing. Did that inspire the fans even more to get out there and to cheer for you even more vehemently than they would have otherwise? Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know. Maybe I should reach out to some of the some of the people I know that are out there cheering, trying to get an indication of the psychology of the fan. But that's but that's so cool though. Oh that, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. The, 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 the folks are out there because yeah, if I was planning to go cheer the teach you road race and it was pouring rain, <laughs> I definitely would stay home. Right. Right. Um, very good. Um, now, Lauren, since this was your first Boston, was there anything that surprised you about the race itself or the course? Or I mean, we talk about the fan support. I would say, yes, the fan support surprised me. I mean, mm-hmm. I'd heard about it, but I still was not really prepared right. for that kind of enthusiasm mm-hmm. about a yeah. bunch of crazy people running 26 miles in the pouring, cold pouring rain. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also surprised at how many little things the Boston Athletic Association thinks of or must mm-hmm. have thought of in the planning of that race. I yeah. mean, just the volunteers they had to set up um, to take your picture at the expo and to do so many little things just to make it mm-hmm. an incredible experience. Mm-hmm. That I, I knew it was going to be a well-done race, but mm-hmm. I wasn't... There were a lot of things that they had done that I hadn't expected. Right. They've had a little bit of time to perfect their game. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 122 times, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Right on. Yeah. Right on. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you, uh, what's the best sign y'all saw? Just keep swimming. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty good. <laughs> that, was uh, better, that was better than 328? Yeah, I, I was going to say that was definitely the worst. Yeah. I will say this too. I was in, just going around Boston, you see plenty of restaurants with pictures of like Tom Brady and Matt Ryan and I was just... Oh, I didn't notice that. Wanted to throw darts, you know. I did not. Um, There's also a dog. More tuned to that stuff. Yeah, there's also a dog holding some flags, which I think has been reposted. I saw him. I I did not. I missed the dog. I was running on the left side, and I think he was on the right. I actually saw him. I was like, I hope they get this poor fella inside. (laughs) Like, the dog doesn't know why he's out here or she. Like, (laughs) then he becomes a viral video star. Right. Right. Uh, uh. Um, All right. So, so uh, through Wellesley onto the Newton Hills. How'd those go? I was so delirious at that point from the cold and everything mm-hmm. else. I really didn't notice them that much. Okay. I had, I was thinking That's about so fantastic. many other things. I mean, I did not run any kind of blazing pace <laughs> the, up the, the Newton the, Hills. The, the, I mean, the it was definitely slow, <laughs> but I was, at that point, I was just so dazed. I, I didn't notice them. Mm-hmm. I will say right before I started the hills, some of the spectators were playing Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas, mm-hmm. like blasting it, and that was... 
That was definitely a high point of my reading. <laughs> 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 Gave me that extra push right before I went into the hills. Because you like the song? Because you... I do like the song. Okay. And I especially like it when it's not Christmas time. Yeah. So uh, that was an unexpected surprise that was just kind of neat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's also some sarcasm there. I like it. Um, <laughs> but that's good to hear because I, I would say one of the, the big things I hear people say their first Boston is, I had a great time. The Winning through Wellesley was great. The first... 18 miles were great, and then it wasn't so great. So the fact that you kind of got to enjoy the entire race, I think that's... Yeah, and I think just not being worried about my time at all, Mm -hmm. not caring that I slowed down was part of... I mean, if I had been trying to run a fast pace up those hills, it would have been a different story. Which which you would have been if the conditions were perfect. Right. And so so there's a degree to which the the conditions being what they were was kind of liberating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Particularly for you who were... were, Because you were intent, rightfully... On, on enjoying the experience because it's been such a long road for you to get there. Yeah. Um, and I think that's cool. That's, did you really, when you were running up Heartbreak Hill, did you, did you say, oh, this is Heartbreak Hill? I did. Okay. I did, but I wasn't. Okay. It, it didn't destroy me, I guess, the yeah. way that I thought it was going to. The, the year that I did it, I got to the top of Heartbreak Hill and didn't realize that I had just run to the top of Heartbreak Hill. Yeah. Oh, really? I, I, was, I was like, yeah, and a fan a fan said, Heartbreak Hill, way to go! And I was like, all right, cool. Uh, I think because I just built it up in my head as being something gigantic. Right. Um, well, someone before the race had told me that there was some kind of gothic structure. Maybe it was, is it at Boston College? The top of Heartbreak Hill? That sounds And right. they said, once you get to this gothic building, then you're done. And right. so I knew, once I got to that building, that I was like, okay, that wasn't so bad. Right on. Mm-hmm. What about you? When the hill started, what was your what was your thought, Patrick? Uh, to to quote that sign, just keep swimming. I mean, I just really <laughs> wanted to keep it steady. And essentially, if you just keep your cadence steady, you'll pass a lot of people. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do anything spectacular. Just kind of by simply not falling off a cliff, you'll pass by a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So my thinking was keep it smooth and steady for the first sixteen miles. Keep it, you know, keep it consistent sixteen to twenty one up the hills. And then start the race after 21. So 16 to 21, my thinking was, even though the adrenaline's there and I'm ready to go, just keep it chill and you can kind of let loose mm-hmm. after you're down here. Yeah, yeah. So in, in the pro races, because um, I, I want to talk about the last 10K, and this kind of sets up talking about the last 10K a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in the pro races, in the women's race, um, uh, Daska, an Ethiopian runner, mm-hmm. broke away right around halfway. Yeah, and 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 uh, was out in front for about eight or nine miles, um, and I remember at one point they showed her around like the seventeen mile mark, and the sheets of rain that were just coming down. Uh, that that was was just I was like, oh my god, that's just incredible. Um, but she and she was out there, and 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 she was she pretty much took off and was gone from the group, mm-hmm. um, and then um, Des Linden and another woman named. Um, Gladys, I think it was Cheerier, um, uh, took off after her, but but just kind of trying to limit the damage. You know, they weren't running as fast as she was, um, and and at that point, the the women's lead pack kind of imploded, and and I think that that's sort of when that's when the women's race just I mean literally the race just kind of disintegrated. Right. Um, that 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 what, what normally would have been you know women running together, then one of them kind of gets out front, and then did a, I mean the, the the race just exploded. Right. Um, with, over the course of like two miles between halfway and 15. Um, and then the men's race, uh, the men largely stayed together through halfway. And then around 17, that's when the defending champion, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Karui, broke away. And again, he, just like Daska, 
ran away and and was just gone. Mm-hmm. Like nobody else in the picture. You know, it's like okay, race over. Um, and he ran over the Newton Hills all solo and all that sort of thing. Um, Dasco right around twenty, right, just just past the top of Heartbreak Hill. So it was funny watching it. Not funny, but wa- watching. The, the coverage. They go to a commercial, then they come back and they interview the push rim wheelchair winner. And and while they're interviewing her, they kind of show the women's race. And you see Dotska, and it's like, wait, her arms are barely moving now. Right. Like, like she's struggling. Oh, wow. And they're still interviewing. And then they go back to the push rim winner, and they're interviewing her. I was like, I was like, this is great. I want to hear this interview. Go back to the split screen, though, because the women's race is about to really change. Right. And they finally went back, and she was, I mean, she was trotting at best i mean she was hardly moving and 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 des london and and gladys Chirir uh caught her pretty soon after that and then then gladys led for like 100 yards and and des london passed her looking great and that was kind of the end of the women's race and then des london goes on to win by four minutes Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah but anyway so so um and then gladys Chirir and daska neither one of them even finished they both dropped out in the last 10k Mm -hmm. um when they were in in podium positions Mm -hmm. um and um so anyway, my point being that that and then, and then so Jeffrey Karui then gets all the way to the twenty five mile mark in the lead, starts falling apart, um, and and between the twenty five mile mark and about twenty five and a quarter is where Kawauchi catches him, passes him, and then wins and beats him by two and a half minutes over the course of the last mile. Um, Kawauchi was twenty seconds behind him with two thousand meters to go, and was twenty seconds in front of him with one mile to go. Good heavens. Wow. So, so yeah, I mean, that shows you how, how he just literally just blasted right past him. Yeah, and then um, he did almost a seven-minute final mile. Yeah, and it was over I mean, seven it minutes. Was... He, it, was, it was close to eight minutes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, uh, Jeffrey Karui did. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so yeah, anyway, the point being of, of kind of telling the pro race there is to say, like, everything just kind of fell apart in the last 10K. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, so, you know, Galen Rupp ended up dropping out just right around Heartbreak Hill, right around 20 miles. And, and then all these folks drop out. And then suddenly all these, these American women end up filling out the rest of the top ten, which was fantastic, which was brilliant. Um, and a lot of people who had been like ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th, suddenly were finishing 4th and 5th in the men's race, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so talk to me about that last 10K. Like, why was that last 10K so devastating? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it was the cumulative effect of not just the race itself, but of the entire morning leading up to it. Now, for the pros, mm-hmm. they, I guess, didn't have to go through all the logistics and things. That they didn't did. have the dystopian start area. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, I mean, by the time we got there, if you think about how many hours it had been since I stepped out of my warm and dry hotel room mm-hmm. into the apocalypse. <laughs> right. <laughs> it, it had just been a long time of being out there. Yeah. Um, Mentally, the final 10K went by again pretty quickly for me because mm-hmm. it was the crowd got thicker the farther down the course you got. Mm-hmm. It got louder, it got more enthusiastic. My pace did not change at all. I was, my body was pretty much just where it was going to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I wasn't really trying to fight it at that mm-hmm. point. Um, but I, I can definitely see where. At that point, there's just you've expended so much mental energy mm-hmm. that it would be yeah. it would be really hard. Yeah, yeah, and it's I mean it's just a twenty mile wall you hit, you know. Yeah, in, in, I mean, and it's mile twenty too. of a marathon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for sure. And I, who, who knows why it seemed that today was particularly tough in the final 10, 10 k It could be that people's body was just that much more tired from having to 
It's been mm-hmm. so many calories heating up for mm-hmm. hours and hours. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I would say that seemed to be, you know, afterwards people ask me, well, did the conditions slow you down? Did, you know, how much did they, or really people seem to ask like, oh, how much do you think it slowed you down? And I still don't really know. You know, we were talking about before this podcast, so they haven't released the average time, mm-hmm. finish time this, for this year yet. Yeah. Um, but it seems to me that for a lot of people, it either didn't slow them down too much or it was devastating. Yeah. There almost wasn't an average because mm-hmm. it's almost like yeah. people fell apart in the final mm-hmm. 10K or they ran the race they were they were going to run. Mm-hmm. Right. Regardless. And, and as we talked about before, part of that was probably because once you start to slow down, maybe you're cramping up, mm-hmm. you, you know, pull a muscle, you know, once you start slowing down, then you start to really go down the slippery slope and your body can't continue to produce the, the amount of energy to, to heat up. And keep you above kind of that invisible line you cross where you get yeah. too cold. Yeah, and I think that's important mm-hmm. because, you know, you generate more heat when you're racing than you do yes. when you're going out for an easy run. Obviously, you're working harder, right? And so so all other things in a marathon conspire to slow you down right. in coming into that last 10K that, you know, say in the men's race, you went out too fast, you know, whatever it happens to be. And, and so things are happening and then you're being forced to slow down so you're not generating a whole lot of heat mm-hmm. and... It, you're soaking wet and it's 35 degrees. Right. And yeah. so, so yeah, I mean, like you say, I think things can get down quickly. And I think that's the, one of the things that really struck me is how quickly things went downhill for so many people in the elite field and probably for so many people in, in the, in the age group field as well. Mm-hmm. That, that, I mean, things can go, go, go off the rails pretty quickly in a marathon, but yeah, I think they just went off the rails particularly quickly and particularly, um, uh, strikingly, devastatingly. Like you said. Yeah, and I think, too, especially for older runners, too. I don't, mm-hmm. you know, they haven't released the final stats yet, but I would imagine yeah. mm-hmm. there's maybe a high rate of DNF for, like, 40 and above. We, so they did, so, you know, there, there was there was right about 27,000 started, uh, 25,746 finished. So it's a 4.4% DNF rate, which is slightly higher than usual. Um, uh, and interestingly enough, the DNF rate for women was slightly higher, like one-tenth of 1% higher. It's normally about 3.5%, and this time it was like 3.7%, something like that. Mm. The DNF rate for the men almost doubled. Mm-hmm. Uh, the DNF rate for men is normally just under 3, and it was at about 5. Um, wow. And so, so the weather and the conditions, or the day in general, was more devastating from a DNF point of view on the men's field than it was on the women's field. And so there's been a lot of conversations over the course of the past week. Why is it that women, you know, were able to? to and, mm-hmm. and I don't, I don't think it's an answer we can totally. Should. Right. I mean, I don't think we totally know, but yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, there were 80 people hospitalized, including three of the elite runners, mm-hmm. um, and more than 2,000 people were treated on the course or at the finish by the med staff. Uh, the vast majority of which were for hypothermia. Um, and can I just say too that is probably a little lower than it could have been, but a lot of people saw that the med tent was packed and you're like all right i can either wait in the tent and get continue to be rained on or i can walk 50 feet that way and get indoors yeah i can can go into a starbucks bathroom right (laughs) okay wow Uh, um we have um uh an athlete that that uh that patrick and i run with several times uh do long runs with um he ended up finishing ninth in his age group in the 40 to 45 age group which is fantastic and um but he had to be treated with the med tent for hypothermia, and he and he had a pretty crushing last ten k. Mm-hmm. Um, he was he ended up running um, a lot slower for the last ten k than he did for the remainder of the race, um, and was treated for hypothermia at the finish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Um, so yeah, I mean it's yeah it was a it was a tough day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, what else you got? 
Uh, I would say the big thing is, or two, two takeaways, or one big final takeaway. Yeah. Uh, one, if you're going to run in a race like this, make sure you have dry clothes at the finish. Okay. I had run in 2015, which had similar conditions, but about 10 degrees warmer. And I had seen a lot of people that maybe they were there by themselves. They didn't have a group. They didn't have a spouse. They didn't have parents who were there with them. So they get to the finish. They don't have dry clothes, and they just go down. Mm-hmm. And then they're almost stuck because they can't move. Mm-hmm. So then they can't get to where they need to go. And it was like it was just a very long negative kind of feedback loop for them. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a, a safety thing. So I know for our group, I kept saying, like, make sure you have dry clothes. Have two pairs of socks waiting for you at the end. Have gloves. Mm-hmm. Have, like, ski gloves, too. Have, like, an Eskimo jacket. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. have everything you need because it's going to be a long day even after the race is done. Yeah. Um, and then a big takeaway yeah, because because at that point it's still thirty five degrees. Right, right. And so, so what would you be putting on if you knew you were going to be outside for a long time in thirty five degrees? Right, right. Because th- when I think about like what what you're going to put in the finish, I think about oh, okay, so I'll just put like my jacket, and right, my, another t shirt yeah. and stuff. But you had to actually like really put clothes in there, right, yeah. right, to keep from it getting dangerous and kind of really being stuck out there. And then from a big picture perspective, I would say as much as the conditions were not ideal. I would not have chosen those conditions if given a choice. Mm-hmm. In a way, it was like the perfect cap to was already a long winter, right? Like, we had so many track workouts in, like, 13 degrees. Yeah. We had so many long runs. Like, Gio and I, we did a long run, and it was, like, pouring rain and 40. And so it was almost like, it was kind of nice to have that that race happen. Everybody sees it, and everyone's like, man, that's amazing you did that. And I was like, well, in a way, we've done stuff like this yeah. all winter. Yeah. Now it's just right. televised so people get to see it and get <laughs> yeah. to kind of recognize right. what yeah. kind of resilience you have to have as a runner just to get to the starting line to begin with. And, and there's there's a lot of anecdotes going around about that, too, mm-hmm. about how, like, like Des Linden, she she trains in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And so she's mm-hmm. running. She, she hasn't raced in conditions like this before, but she's running them plenty. Right. Uh, Tyler Pinnell, the Zap fitness athlete who ended up finishing fourth, mm-hmm. um, his last long run, like long workout, um, he did in really bad, into the wind, snowy conditions. And, and they said that, you know, Yuki Kawauchi won that Marshfield Marathon in 218, running solo in January, on January 1st, mm-hmm. you know, in single digit temperatures. So, so yeah, there's definitely something to, not, not like I said, almost nobody had raced in those conditions before, um, but there's something to at least having spent some time in those things and not being intimidated by them, taking them straight. Right. And I would say... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, since you mentioned Tyler Pinnell, I also want to throw out there, uh, Zap Fitness and Pete Ray had a great day at the Boston Marathon. So not only did Pinnell finish really high, but North Gwinnett High graduate um, or <laughs> alumni, Nicole Mercurio, I always say it wrong, um, she finished sixth among women at the at the race right overall. Right That's phenomenal. We actually got to talk to her at the uh, Zap Fitness um, social the day before the race. So big shout out to to local runner. Go Bulldogs! Kind of favorite of the podcast. Bulldogs, North Gwinnett Bulldogs, not University of Georgia Bulldogs. She, <laughs> All right, she, she she was a University of Georgia Bulldog as well. So okay, so. I have a story about that real quick. So we were at the social. We were talking to Pete. And I said, so what are your runners expecting? Do you have high hopes? At least some of these people's um, first time. We're just kind of talking about some of the individual runners. And he said, yeah, and, you know, I know y'all are based in Atlanta. Nicole actually was, was a bulldog. And, what, and our very own Gordy Powell, in a way that only he could do it, shouts across the bar, like, go dogs, and flashes her with, with his, like, Georgia undershirt. <laughs> and then we ended up talking to her for a while, so... What he lacked, I guess, intact, he made it for in brute force. But so, right on, <laughs> that's great. And, and, and he happens to be the guy that we were talking about who PR the next day. So, yeah, so very really nice. good. Um, 
Lauren, tell us about, you crossed the finish line. Tell us about the finish line. Mm-hmm. Well, I had to, so I had to force myself to breathe approaching the finish line. Once I saw the, you know, the big blue yeah. finish structure and I thought about, you know, all the years of setbacks and disappointments, I really had to try, I had to make a conscious effort not to hyperventilate because I, right. I was starting to cry just as I ran up on it. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, it just wouldn't do to pass out 100 yards before the finish. <laughs> <of> the <laughs> so keep it together for another 100 yards, you know, and then you can ball all you want. Um, yeah, it, it's hard to put into words what the finish line of that race is like. Mm-hmm. Just the people, it seemed like it was about 100 deep on either side. Yes. You know, the noise was like a football game. Yeah, I mean, it was it was surreal. I really can't do justice to what crossing the finish line of that race is like. Mm-hmm. So you crossed incredible. the finish line. Did you meet people afterwards? I did. Because um, your parents were up there, right? They were, and so was my boyfriend. And uh, they actually put my finished gear bag, which was full of all kinds of warm treasures, in the wrong <laughs> yes. bin. So when I got to the gear check... <laughs> I stood there for probably about 20 minutes while they were scrambling looking for my bag. It was like losing your luggage at the airport. I was standing there watching all these other runners come and go with their warm sweatshirts. And then, um, (laughs) and then when I saw, and I was worried because I knew my family had been out there. I mean, it must've been a rough day for anybody waiting on a family member. And I knew that my parents were out there and they were freezing and wet. And I just was like, Oh, I feel so bad that they're waiting for me all this time. And then I saw the line to go into the changing tent was, you know, half as long as the race. And so I just carried my... I didn't actually change until I got back to my hotel probably, mm-hmm. you know, over an hour later. Right. Because once I passed the changing tent, I was like, well, I'm not going to change into dry clothes only to get soaked again walking back to the train. So um, So you kept your wet clothes on? For a long time, Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. Was I would the, say was, that was the, that the post-race... The two, yeah, yes. <laughs> yes, it was. The two hours after the race were almost as hard as the race itself. I, I mean, say. I was just walking around convulsing, and there, you know, there was trying to meet up with the people that were there and get that organized. It took forever, and we were just out there in the freezing cold. It was... Um, that was rough. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. was part of the challenge of the day, too. For sure. I, I can imagine. And for, I mean, it's almost hard to describe to people... It was, at the finish, it was just a sea of human beings who were shivering. Right. Just uncontrollably. I mean, yes. it was like you could hear the chattering teeth. Yes. Yeah. Wow. It, it was pretty wild. Jeez. But glad to hear your, your finish line experience was, or your, your your final, you know, left on Boston was everything you kind of... It was. It absolutely yeah. was. And I think that looking back on it now, it is kind of cool to be able to say, oh, yeah, I ran Boston on that epic day. I feel like now it's become one of those races like... What was it? 2012 St. George mm-hmm. when the lake yeah. was all crazy and yeah. Lake Tahoe 2015. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, it just, and yeah, mm-hmm. it was amazing. Right on. Mm-hmm. Very good. Very yeah, good. You, no one can ever take it away from you. So it's, right. It's, right. You can always, you know, say you're a Boston, Boston Marathon. Marathon. Yes. Boston Marathon finisher. Mm-hmm. Very good. Absolutely. Um, and so I, I know the answer to this, but but I always say Boston Marathon lives up the hype, lived up to the hype for you, Lauren. Yes. <laughs> An emphatic yes. Yeah. Very good. Very good. And it continued to love the hype, Patrick? Absolutely. Right. Every good. time. Very good. A um, couple more kind of just one, only only one more quick story I did want to mention here just because I know it's a bit just to people to listen. Um, Tim Don, 
mm-hmm. um, uh, professional triathlete, 40-year-old professional triathlete, uh, spent a lot of time in the ITU, uh, did 740 for an Ironman in Brazil last year, uh, the fastest anybody has ever done an Ironman-branded race. Um, and then in Kona, getting ready for the World Championship last year, he was running over by a car and, uh, and, and broke his C2 vertebrae way up high in your neck. Um, he, uh, he wore uh, one of those halo mm-hmm. things that, that, that keeps your, your head in place. Um, even though it was more painful, they said that, that it, was, uh, it would help him heal more quickly. And so he did that. Um, and as part of his comeback, um, he, uh, he told the New York Times the weekend before that he wanted to run under 250, and he did uh, 249.40 something. Mm-hmm. So just squeaked right under 250 exactly where he wanted to That's unreal. Race. That's incredible. So yeah, so, so big shout out to, to Tim Don, um, uh, triathlete. Uh, he says he doesn't know whether he's going to do an Ironman later on this year or not. We'll see. So yeah, very good. Um, all right, y'all, final thoughts, final stories, other things you heard about, other things you, you, you said, oh, I wanted to mention this during the podcast, and, and you just didn't think of uh, nothing for me other than uh, for anybody who is still kind of looking for that bear th- uh, Boston qualifier or you're still looking to get that BQN, go for it. It's worth it every time. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Be patient. <laughs> That's my <laughs> final takeaway. Be patient. Keep at it. And you'll get there. Mm-hmm. Right on. And that's, that's like the perfect way to end. So thank you for that, Lauren. Lauren, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And Patrick, of course, as always, thanks. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And that'll do it for another installment of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Find us online on Twitter, at Pleasant Podcast, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Pleasant Podcast. Reach out to ITL Coaching and Performance at itlcoaching.com, at ITL Coaching on Twitter, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash ITL Coaching and Performance. And we didn't mention this during the podcast, but who planned the housing for Lauren Fogarty during her Boston Marathon? It was Casey the Travel Planner, my wife. So reach out to her for any travel needs you have, including, of course, race accommodations. Uh, Facebook.com slash Casey Travel Planner, MEV. Casey Travel Planner at gmail.com. That's K A C I E Travel Planner at gmail.com. And, of course, CaseyTravelPlanner.com. On behalf of Patrick Ollinger and Lauren Fogarty, this is George Darden. Thanks for joining us on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. <laughs>